We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. But one of the things I want to make sure that you are aware that you don't miss is 13 is absolutely tied to verse 12. And if we, if we divorce that, if we don't see that, then we're going to run through it always trying to make some connection, always having this sense that there's something missing as we read 13 through 17. So let's, let's read verse 12 and then I'll tie it to 13 and we'll just read along as we work our way through. Verse 12, chapter 3. Peter wrote and said, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so we come into verse 12 and we know that what is God's disposition for the righteous? What is God's disposition for the Christian? His eyes are on them, and so he sees them. He recognizes all that they're going through. His ears are open to their prayer. And so when we find ourselves going through difficulty, we have a God who not only sees what we're going through, but a God who longs for us to call out to him, to entreat him that he would move in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our difficulty. So he's, he, Peter is, is working in this to prompt our hearts to attune our minds that we might know and understand who God is before he moves into this next section. Because what he's going to be addressing moving through this is some of you are going to find yourselves in the middle of suffering. Some of you already today would say that I suffer. I suffer in this way, this shape, this form, this fashion. This is what suffering looks like for me in my life. But let me just draw a quick distinction. Some of you suffer because you're stupid. Yeah, what? Yeah, so some of you, you engage in sinful, stupid behavior, and on the basis of this, you suffer. I mean, just sin has this stupefying effect, and so you've been engaged in sin for so long that you no longer recognize it as stupidity in your part. You no longer recognize it as rebellion in your part. You recognize it as tremendous misfortune. And perhaps you've surrounded yourself with people that when you've described the situation you're in, they say, oh, what a, what a, what a misfortune, what a pity. If you're in the Czech Republic, they would say, toya škoda, which means it's a shame or it's a pity. And everybody you meet on the basis of hearing your account of how your life goes would say, oh, that's a real shame. That's a real pity. That's some real suffering you've got there. But let me tell you, inasmuch as you find yourself suffering the consequence of sin, this is sinfulness and stupidity on your part. The reason you suffer, some of you, is because you are rebelling against the word of God. Others of you, others of you, perhaps the reason that you're suffering is because you stood up for righteousness sake. You, you entered into a righteous discussion with a spouse, with a child, with a co-worker, and because of this, suffering has been invited into your life. And it still hurts and it's still difficult. Now I can tell you from my point of view, I've been in both of these. I have suffered because I've been stupid. I've suffered and been in the middle of it and found myself crying out to God, God, woe is me, my flesh. I make my, my bed wet with tears and all these things. And God's just like, you're stupid. Stop it. Stop it. I'm reading the word and I come against things. I'm like, this is me. And God's like, that's right. You're being stupid. Stop it. Stop it. Stop being stupid and you'll stop suffering in this. Walk in righteousness. And then other times I found myself standing up for the gospel and suffering. Suffer against family, you suffer against friends, you suffer in the workplace, you suffer in society. So what we read as we go through this, Peter's writing in his direction is, uh, is asking us to center ourselves on suffering that stems from righteous behavior. We have to understand that as we go through this. Look at the first question he asks. Now who is there 
to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. So we take the understanding that God's eyes are on the righteous, that his ears are open to them, and Peter comes in, and the first thing he does is ask what appears to be a rhetorical question. So if you do what is good, if you're zealous to do what is good, who is there to harm you? And so many of us respond, and we would say, nobody. Nobody's going to harm us if we're doing what is good, if we're doing what is moral, what is upright, and what is true. But at the heart of the matter, that's not what Peter is asking. We recognize this, that really he's preparing our hearts for what it is to suffer and to rely upon the provision of God. And so look at this. Our understanding in this, our understanding in this is that many of us, the reason that we have escaped any harm in our lives is not because we're not good, polite, and kind, and, and really encouraging and wonderful neighbors, but the reason that many of us have not suffered in this life is because we're more or less invisible Christians. And so what we are is zealous for Southern behavior. We're zealous for morality. We're zealous to do good to those around us. And so your, your yard is impeccable. Your neighbor never wants for someone to bring their groceries from their car into the house. The sick around you, they never want for someone to care for them. But when it comes to standing up for the gospel, well, you just don't want to offend anybody. And so in, in a very real sense, in a Petrine Peter understanding of what he's writing at here, if you are not standing up and being good, zealous for the gospel, then you know not what it is to be good. This is what he's writing and describing here. And so the question that many of us are asking in our hearts and, and we're going through and we say, look, I thought life was all about kind of keeping your head down, staying in your lane and not offending those you run into. Well, this is really the life that most of us have lived in. And to be truthful, I found myself certain times you come into a situation, you're like, I could stand and I could be bold for the gospel or I could stay in my lane, which is much faster and it's going to get me where I want to go. And man, it is the express lane. But what God is calling Christ followers to, what he calls each and every one of us to, and what he allows to happen in our life is God has raised you up, put you, listen to this, he's put you in a neighborhood, he's put you in a job, he's put you in a family, and he's placed you in different situations so that you might testify to his goodness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he's done for you. And I want you to understand this, I want you to hear this. Some of us look at our lives, look at our lot, look at our station, all the different places that we're in, and we say, this is pretty miserable, this is pretty uncomfortable. I really wish I had what Becky had. I really wish I had what Sue had. I really wish I had what John had. Well, I really wish I had Justin's shirt. Nobody's ever said that. <laughs> but in the midst of this and all these things, we recognize that God has you exactly where you're supposed to be when you're looking to live righteously for him. And all those people that are around you God is, is seeking to show his love for them through you. Perhaps that annoying neighbor, perhaps that difficult spouse, perhaps that wayward child, perhaps this person who just grates on your nerves, and we all know the person. Perhaps that person is waiting to hear, to receive, to discover the love of God, and that through your ministry and your testimony in their lives. Amen? So he asks this question, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But then he turns over the other side of it and he says, but even if, but even if you should suffer, listen to this, for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. 
Well, many of us, the reason that we don't want to testify to God's sovereignty, the reason we don't want to testify to God's righteousness, the reason we don't want to live it out in the workplace, the reason why we want to stay in the express lane and keep our heads down and not be offensive is because we don't want to be troubled. We don't want to be bothered. We don't want to interrupt the workflow. We don't want to disrupt productivity or whatever way you baptize this and made it feel good in your heart. But what we recognize in this is that one of our immediate problems with this verse is our understanding of what it means to be blessed. You see, for many of us, the way that we have defined what it means to be blessed is either impacted through this kind of, this onslaught of the airways on the radio, television, or Facebook, or some pithy bumper sticker by which you got stuck behind a person in traffic that said, this is what it is to be blessed, to be healthy. This is what it is to be blessed, to be wealthy. This is what it is to be blessed, to have everything I've ever wanted. So you drive through some ritzy neighborhood in Dallas, and you see big house, fancy cars, you see restaurants with people dining in them, and, and they seem happy, and, and they describe all these wonderful vacations they took. And this is what makes it into our mind. You look at that, and you look at that, and you describe that as being blessed. This is what our culture tells us. This is what many that, that profess to be Christians tell us, that this is what blessing is when we have material things. When we have vacations, we have experiences, when we have health. When we have vitality, I can tell you some of the most blessed people I've ever met don't have two quarters to rub together. Their health is failing, family's falling apart. But in that moment, you turn and you ask them, friend, are you blessed? And they say, I can't even begin to describe the blessing that God has brought into my life. A very good friend of mine who's seven-year-old will die any day now. I have a seven-year-old son. From the moment his son was born, he had cancer. From the very moment he was born. You ask him, are you blessed? Doesn't have a high-paying job. Doesn't have a fancy car. He's not celebrated by anybody. His son will die any day. But when you ask him, are you blessed? He says, the, good, the goodness the loving kindness of God rests upon my life. It rests upon the lives of my family. I am blessed. So we get into this verse, and we recognize that the call in this verse is absolutely this call which is completely countercultural. If we stand for righteousness' sake and suffer, even in the midst of this, our blessedness is not shaken. Even in the midst of this, even in the midst of tremendous trials and difficulty, our blessedness, our position before God does not change because it is not determined by the stuff we have or its recognition on the faces of those we encounter. Do you understand what I'm saying? Your blessedness is this internal quality of life that is decreed in the kingdom of heaven. That as God looks at you, he reckons you blessed where? In Jesus Christ, your union with Christ is what makes you blessed. It's not getting a promotion. It's not living to be 90, 110, 120 years old. It's not having many grandchildren. It's not being married. We've got to quit describing blessing in terms of those good things that come into our lives on the basis of what people in our culture say. To be blessed 
is to have the favor of God in our lives. And the favor of God in our lives comes to rest in us in our union with Jesus. It is the forgiveness of sins. It's not having to pay the penalty, the punishment of sin and death. Why? Because Jesus stood in our stead. The blessed one allowed his blessing to extend to us. We are forgiven, and in that, we are blessed beyond measure. Amen? He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. He's quoting in some sense out of Matthew 5.10. Matthew 5.10, within the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. To stand for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and to suffer for it does not mitigate, nullify, or work to the detriment of our blessedness. So he calls into this and he recognizes this next kind of couplet. The end of 14 and rolling into 15 is a compound thought. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Our temptation in the midst of coming into difficulty is that we would fear, we would be troubled by those who have the ability to, to upset the apple cart, so to speak. We come into the midst of a situation, your boss finds out you're a Christian, your spouse finds out you're a Christian. I'm sure that's an interesting conversation. And so all these things move through. There's this tendency to fear that, one, that our relationship might deteriorate, that it might sublimate, that it might just go up into gas right in front of us, that there might be nothing left of our relationships. And so in that, we fear the person and we fear the outcome. We fear the person and we fear the outcome. What would happen if people found out what I really thought? What would happen if I begin to really begin to live all the mandates of Scripture? If I begin to really display the gracious nature of the gospel on all those I encounter, on all those that are combative and difficult to me? What if people just ran right over me? What if, what if, I, didn't, if I didn't stand up for myself, I didn't seek to advance my agenda, if I didn't seek to make all these things work out and control all these things and keep them all together? Pastor, you just don't know how things would be. Well, neither do you. You don't have a black ball that you can, you know, it says, I'm sorry, the future looks cloudy. That's the best you can get. That's the best you can get. That's the closest you can get to predicting the future is to buy one of those little magic eight balls and shake it up. And the only thing that that thing can say on there with any semblance of truth is the future looks cloudy. Because this is your vantage point and this is its vantage point. You have no way of knowing how people will respond to your actions. However... You are absolutely commanded, entreated, begged to move out in righteousness. And the word we see here is have no fear of them. Have no fear of these people. Be not troubled by the circumstance. Be not troubled by how these things might turn out for you. What's the corrective then? On the one hand, our hearts want to run to fear. I'm one who likes to control situations. I want to, to map out all the different ways this thing could fall out. And so I'm not just, you know, you're paranoid or wondering how these things are go out. I'm, I'm going to be a list maker. They could say this. They could say this. They could say this. Blame it on the fact that I used to love to read Choose Your Own Adventure Stories as a child. You remember those? You go through and you're like, A, you could jump off the cliff. B, you could call a friend for help. C, the book is over now. I'm thinking, so this is scary stuff. I just don't want to know I'm going to close that book. And so I've kind of brought this into my own lives at times. And I'm marking through, well, if this happens, then this is how this is going to go. This happens, then this is how this is going to go. But we see an incredibly instructive corrective for my heart and for some of you this morning. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. 
the corrective for the Christian in place of being troubled, in place of being afraid, is in a very real sense allowing Christ to assume the role in our hearts that is rightly his. If you are saved, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, then he is already rightly the ruler of your heart. But this is our tendency. This is, this is our givenness, that we, we remove him from being Lord of our life, we remove him from his rightful throne in our hearts, and we begin to make decisions in line with what brings me the most immediate positive consequence. This is kind of who we are. As a general rule and as a general purpose, we are not a selfless people. As a general rule, we are a people that are risk-averse, and as a rule, we are people who don't want to suffer. Like, there's nobody lined up out there saying, uh, sign me up, Pastor, I'd like to suffer Tuesday, 2.30. This really works for me. If you could pray to God that he could bring some suffering into my life. 3 o'clock now, i got something going. But 2.30, that would be really sweet, okay? Could you work that for me? One, I don't have that ability, would never pray for that. Two, we need to talk about your scheduling. It's gotten out of hand. But as we see in this, as we see in this, the corrective to the wayward nature of our heart, the corrective... To, this isn't more rules and more regulations it's this heart rent prayer before God God would you again assume the role that is rightly yours would you reveal to me those ways and areas that I have assumed control in my heart would you again take the reins of my heart would you pull its motivations and so it's this very inward deal that he's calling us to here in our hearts Christ has to be honored is holy, And when we begin to do this, it's this prayer coming before God, and, and it's really just very, this very simple thing. God, would you show me all the ways I'm not honoring you as holy in my heart? It's a very simple application for us. God, would you show me all the ways I'm not honoring you as holy in my heart? And then would you give me the tenacity, the strength, the courage, the humility, and the meekness? To let you assume that place. And when we begin to pray that, when that begins to be our prayer, when that begins to be our vertical relationship with God, God, would you assume this role of my heart? Would you breathe these things in my heart? Would you take full control of my heart and show me all the ways that I'm seeking to glom on and take control and be in charge? It completely affects our horizontal relationship. Our fear of those who might bring harm our way, our fear of the circumstances and how these things can, are going to go, they begin to disappear, they begin to dissipate because they hold no sway on our heart. Why? Because we are becoming bold in Christ Jesus. His boldness becomes our own. His courage becomes our own. And in the midst of this, we're not looking to skirt around difficult conversations. We're looking to engage in them. Why? Because we are constrained and directed by the love of Christ. And he is ruling and reigning in our hearts. When we begin to make him as, as Lord holy and, and begin to honor him in our hearts. Look what it says next here in verse 15. This is what it begins to prompt and, and produce in us. It says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, according to Paul in Ephesians 2.12, we know what it is to be a people without hope. In Ephesians 2.12, Paul said, formerly, you were far off and you were people without God and no hope in the world. We know. Christian, you know what it is to be without hope in the world. You know what that is. 
But he, this is what he says, that when we begin to make Christ as Lord holy in our hearts, it's building in this preparedness for us to give a testimony for the gospel. The word that he's using here, this idea of, of a defense, is an, an apology, to be an apologist for the gospel. Now, perhaps you've, you've watched on the news, you've seen it on TV, or you've read a book on apologetics, and you read it, and you say, man, there is no way I could do this. This is nuts. All the facts and figures that these people keep in their heads, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky to remember John 3, 16. The verse reference or the follow-up. I mean, how am I supposed to remember all these things in my heart? How am I supposed to treasure up? How am I supposed to know these things and just repeat them as they come on? Pastor, you're professionally hired to do this. Can I just call you and get you to come to my house? When the guy knocks on my door, I say, hold on, let me call somebody. Hold on, he never answers when I call. I really hate that guy. And so you call the next pastor on your list. Hold on, let me get him. And so that's not my role, that's not my job. Recognize this, the way that we read through scripture and the way that we see this, if you understood enough of the gospel to be saved, if you understood enough of the gospel to be saved, then you understood enough of the gospel to testify about it. This is the logic Peter's using here. This is the logic he's using here. All you lack is the courage and desire to follow through. And so this is what happens when you begin to honor Christ as holy and honor him in your hearts. He is reminding you that you already knew enough of the gospel to tell somebody about it. And so conversely, we would look at this and say that if you don't understand, if you are not able, listen to me, if you are not able to articulate the gospel to somebody else, then the question becomes, how in the world do you have any assurance that you're saved? If somebody walks up to you on the street and they say, tell me then, what must I do to be saved? And you say, this is a great question. I've been waiting. Pastor told me to expect this to come. Hold on. Let me get, let me get him on the phone. Let me scroll through my notes. And Are you kidding me? If you don't understand enough of the gospel to tell somebody what it is, this decision you have staked eternity on, the question to me becomes quite clear. Have you actually understood the gospel? I'm not saying if you don't share, you're not a Christian. What I'm saying is if you don't understand enough to share, how could you rightly describe yourself as a Christian? And you say, well, look, I just don't know much about the faith. Well, that's fine. This is where we all start. None of us knew much about the faith in the beginning. We recognized a couple of things. One, that we were lost, completely set apart from God. Two, that he sent his son Jesus to save us, and we needed that. We desired that. And so we cried out for that. We believed that he died in our stead, and that we just raised on the third day. And so we cried out, God, come in and save me in Jesus. And you say, Pastor, that's all I know. That's all I understand. Peter's not presuming you understand anything more than that. And that's enough to save somebody. It was enough to save you. You say, no, I was convinced by some argument. No, you weren't. It was the role of the Holy Spirit working in your heart to convict you of sin and to lead you in righteousness. Now, he might have used those things to be at work in your heart, but at the crux of it, anybody that's saved is only ever saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ and not some cleverly worded uh, abstract idea that we put to them and say, oh, I get it now. Four plus five is occasionally 15. No. If you understood enough of the gospel to be saved, then you understand enough of the gospel to communicate it. So what he writes here is that if somebody comes up, somebody walks into automatic gas and they walk into Tim's desk and they say, Tim, tell me how I can make a defense for this. 
Tell me how you can make a defense for this. He just lays it out there. He explains the gospel to them. And look what is tied to this further. You can make a defense to anyone, anyone that walks up to you, and anyone you see on the street, you can make a defense for the gospel on the basis, this kind of charismatic gospel. And you can give to them the reason for the hope that is inside you. Christian, the reason that the, for the hope that is inside you is not because you recognize that this life is temporary. The hope that is inside you is not because you recognize that all these things are fleeting. The hope that is inside you, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, is born in us. It is this living hope. 1 Peter chapter 3 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to, listen to this, His great mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope, and that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The reason why Christians have hope, the reason why any of us have hope is always tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? The reason any of us have hope, the reason any of us have joy in life is always tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in the basis of this, we're able to tell people this is why we have hope. So that when somebody comes up to, to Frank and Claudette and says, you guys experience a tremendous amount of difficulty in medical things. Why in the world can you have hope? Why can you smile in the midst of this? They don't say it's because we're good and light-natured people, even though they are. They point them to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We lose a spouse. We lose a child. We lose our job. We suffer mentally through depression or bipolar. Why do we have hope? It's not in the medication to bring us to the middle. Our hope, our hope is always, only, ever in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you understand this? We use all these things to treat ourselves, but our hope, our unassailable hope, when it hits rock bottom and we're riding on the mountain of ecstasy, our hope is only ever in the gospel of Jesus Christ, him crucified and him resurrected. That's where our hope is. So when they co someone comes up to you and they engage you and they say, it's easy for you to have hope. You've got a good job, you've got a healthy family. You say, friend, all these things could disappear. They're all ephemeral, transitory, passing away quickly. My hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But friend, I want you to understand something. The way that we used to go out and engage in the gospel was hateful, harassing, and, and, and the completely the opposite of loving. We went out and we spewed venom and hate. We talked about people's lifestyles and, and we said God hates this and he hates that. And, and we were standing in the place of God deriding all those we came into contact with. And look what he says here next. I want you to understand, I want you to ask the question, is that compatible with an expression of the gospel? Peter would suggest it is not. He said, we need to give it offense, we need to explain the reason, but we need to do so with gentleness and respect. Every person we meet is someone made in the image and the likeness of God. They may be the most outspoken uh, advocate for the LGBT lifestyle. They, most, they may be the most outspoken person that stands for everything you detest, everything you hate. In fact, everybody in your sphere of influence, your family that lives on your block, may say this person is scum and worthless. 
But according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to the Bible I read and the one that's before you, we recognize that everyone is worthy of God's love. And he is desirous that all come to know him. The murderer, the homosexual, the liar, the pornographer, the adulterer, person that's so wayward and caught up in what it is to be good and to manifest goodness that everybody would look at them and say man he is such a good warm and just solid guy she's the most hospitable wonderful woman i've ever met have you ever been to her home it's delightful and smells of of apple pie and chocolate chip cookies i don't know how she makes both of them happen at the same time but it makes my mouth just drool it's so awkward this person that's so caught up in, in their particular sin is being so captivated with the recognition that everybody has of them of being hospitable. All of us are, are lost and mired in sin outside the goodness and the grace of God. And what we recognize is that everyone we come into contact with, he's calling on us to be gentle, to be respectful. There is no room in the gospel of Jesus Christ to be hateful and harassing. And calling someone, listen to this, calling someone to repentance can be done in a loving, kind, and gracious way. And aren't you thankful that somebody engaged you once before with the gospel and they did so with gentleness and respect? Aren't you thankful that when somebody engaged you with the gospel and beckoned you to come, they weren't trying to beat you over the head with the gospel and God's hate, but they showed instead to you God's love? We need to do so with gentleness and respect. Look here in 2.12, I'm sorry, in 3.16. 3.16 seems to be, the, in fact, the very opposite of what we saw in 2.12. So we've honored Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts, ready to make offense. We've honored Christ the Lord in our hearts, and he's producing in us a good conscience so that when we are slandered, those who revile you and your good behavior in Christ Jesus may be put to shame. When you have a good conscience before God, it's, it's evaluating your own life. And so you evaluate your life and you say, okay, these are the areas that I'm sinful. These are the things I'm struggling on. This is what I'm working through. And so it's being known by God. It's asking God, God, would you reveal to me what's going on in my heart? Would you show me where my heart was going? Would you show me the sinful nature of my mind? Would you reveal to me the, the, the waywardness of my life? And so it's you knowing you and God knowing you. And so in the midst of this, Christian, you should be seeking to have a good conscience before God. So it says, having a good conscience, when you are slandered, effectively, when you aren't engaged in the behavior they're accusing you of. When you aren't engaged in the behavior they're accusing you of, they will be found to be put to shame. Now back in chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter argued effectively the opposite of this. So I want you to see how both sides of this coin look. Back in 2.12, this is what he wrote. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak out against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I want you to understand that one of two things happen when somebody encounters the gospel in your life. Perhaps you go out and you're communicating the gospel orally. You're communicating the gospel with your mouth. You're demonstrating the gospel with your life. Somebody comes up and they see you. They see Shane, they see Kevin, they see Justin, they see John. They see you. They see you boldly living out the gospel. It prompts in their heart to ask you, how can you have this hope? How can you have this assurance? You begin to lay out the gospel. You've lived a bold display of the gospel before them. 
2.12 says they may see that and glorify God on the day of visitation. They see that, they surrender their hearts to God, they cry out to Jesus for salvation. Peter writes there and he says they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. When Christ returns, they will be among the redeemed. Other people, you go out, they see that. James is, is living out the gospel in his workplace. Susan is living out the gospel working with homeschoolers. And so we recognize that they're living out the gospel, they're displaying it. People come up and they see them, they slander them. Their heart is hard for the gospel that they hear, the gospel that they see. And what we read here in 1 Peter 3.16 is that they will be shamed on the basis of it. What we recognize in this are the two responses to the gospel. Those of us who have surrendered our lives to Jesus, we will join in. We will join in and we will rejoice at the glorification, the return of Jesus. But all those of us whose hearts are still hard towards the gospel, and some of us, it's our families, it's our friends, it's our coworkers, it's our spouses, it's our children. What's awaiting them on the day of the return of Christ, Peter writes and says that they may be put to shame. Everyone will witness the same thing. The response to what they witnessed is grossly different. Some will see it and be glad they put their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. Others will see it and be proven, be shown that they were wrong. And they will suffer shame, torment, and separation for all eternity. If there is ever a prompting in the heart of a Christian to share the gospel, it's the recognition of this fact. We recognize that lest mankind turn their hearts towards Jesus, they will forever be separated from God in hell. You don't particularly love your neighbor. You don't particularly love your family members. Recognize this, your refusal to share is keeping them from hearing about the love of God. And it is you being disobedient. You are working towards their shame. You are working towards their alienation. God calls all of us to engage in the pursuit of the gospel. As we make Christ Lord and honor him in our hearts, we're ready to make a defense. We're living out this good conscience. People see the gospel lived out in our lives. And then we come to this last word of encouragement in verse 17. Peter writes and says, It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Some of us are going to suffer. See it in the news every day. You read about it on Facebook. You hear about it from your friends. Some of us are going to suffer for engaging in righteous behavior. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your relationship with those around you that you care deeply for, perhaps on the basis of you standing for the gospel. Peter comes to it and he says, you need to understand this. It's better, it's better for you that you suffer for doing good than that you suffer for doing evil. Would you pray for me? And pray for us together that we would be a people who would submit ourselves so much to God that we would be a people willing to suffer for the gospel. 
instead of being a people who would merely put up with suffering for having done evil. Let's pray together.